This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of Stendhal Syndrome? If not, fear not. It is part of a new book. At least it's talked about in a new book. It is the true story of what could be the most prolific art thief in history. And Michael Finkel is the author of The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and a Dangerous Obsession. And he joins me now. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure to be here. What a story. Let's start, before we get into uh, this uh, Stendhal syndrome, tell us a little bit more about this book, The Art Thief, and what it's about. The Art Thief is about a criminal named Stefan Breitweiser, who was born in 1971, so he's alive and well. He's a Frenchman who stole more than 300 works of art worth an estimated $2 billion dollars in the late 90s and early 2000s. He stole them non-violently during the day, sometimes with guards in a room, using his girlfriend and Catherine Kleinklaus as a lookout. But most astonishingly, as if those two things weren't astonishing enough, he put all of his stolen artwork, rather than trying to sell it, which almost all art thieves do, he hung all of this $2 billion worth of artwork in his bedroom and just enjoyed it. That's uh, the story of Stefan Breitweiser. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from, from that point, because there, <laughs> there are so many different branches there. So, so he didn't steal to sell it. He didn't do this to make money. Was he just a great lover of art, or was he a lover of the, the rush of stealing? I think some combination of the two. Now, he said to me that really it wasn't the stealing that thrilled him. It was the acquisition. But of course, for example, when he stole paintings, he would take off the frame because frames make a painting very large and too hard to sneak out of your museum. And he would put the frame in a very conspicuous spot in the museum. He called that his calling card. So that proves that he really liked the steel and liked the game of it. But wow, the way he described looking at works of art in his bedroom was just sort of overwhelming and inspiring to me. Now, I'm not uh, advocating stealing things from museums, but it is nice to look at a work of art, for example, at night with a glass of wine in your hand, perhaps with your lover with you. That does seem a little more romantic than being jostled and elbowed by a, a hundred of uh, strangers in a, in a museum. And so he, he did speak romantically about the paintings. And when you talk about, uh, so at times using his girlfriend as a lookout. I mean, this isn't something that anybody could just walk off the street and get away with this once, let alone over and over uh, and accumulate that amount of art. Did you find out or did you get some insight into how he even trained himself or how he became so good at this? Brightweiser granted me dozens of hours of exclusive interviews 
Uh, he had never uh, he had never spoken to an English uh, language journalist before. We spoke to each other in French, and he described pretty much each of his two hundred crimes. He was sort of like a street magician in a way, where like he's the type of person who could be look you in the eye and have a conversation with you, and then when you walk away, you realize that your wristwatch mm-hmm. and your wallet are missing. He had that sort of ability to do that, but he also had this beautiful eye uh, for for objects in a museum that were just striking. It wasn't always the biggest or the most valuable piece. It was the one that struck him as the most aesthetically pleasing. And those were the pieces he was drawn to, as long as they were the right size in the right spot in the museum. In other words, not with a security camera or a guard right looking over it. So it, it, a combination of love and accessibility allowed him to uh, take all these works of art. Uh, you mentioned, so he hadn't talked to any other uh, English-speaking uh, journalist. And so uh, people will recognize your name, too, I think, uh, if uh, you've read The Stranger in the Woods. And uh, I'm a big fan of that book. I thought it was fascinating. How do you get people to talk to you? Or how do you convince people to spend that time and tell you their stories? Well, thank you for your kind words. Yeah, I, I mean, I admire, like, the heroes of the world, the nurses and doctors and frontline fighters, but something about the criminals and the scallywags, those are the people that really just sort of catch my journalistic sense. And I spent 11 years on this project and almost a decade on the previous book, The Stranger in the Woods. It just takes a lot of time to get uh, to get criminals to sort of open up. And I usually start by writing letters back and forth, which is what I did with the art thief. Brightweiser. We spent four years writing letters back and forth to each other in French before he allowed me to meet him for lunch. After that lunch meeting, we did more than 40 hours of interviews. So it takes a little bit of time. And I think I actually have a genuine, no, I'm not a criminal myself, Jill, but I definitely have like this sort of, I'll admit it here on the air, uh, I have this fascination with how people can get away with crimes, especially something like art theft, because, I mean, who doesn't go to a museum? My wife and I love to go to museums, and we always say the same thing to each other when we find a work that just is great. We look at each other and we say, wow, man, wouldn't that just look great above our sofa? And uh, we let the thought go through our mind, but, of course, then we let it go right out the other side. Breitweiser and his girlfriend, and Catherine, did not let that thought go. They took the work and actually put it over their sofa, and it's just something... And undeniably fascinating about that. It is definitely. I'm. I'm always of the. I wonder if I could touch that piece of artwork with the <laughs> beyond the stanchion without a security guard seeing me. But clearly, I'm not as adventurous as others when <laughs> when thinking about what you can get away with. Um, you, you also kind of touched on something called Stendhal syndrome. That is that something. Is it a real thing? Is that something that Brightweiser had? And I'm curious. And again, don't want to give away everything in the book. But is that something that that he was comfortable talking about? So Stendhal, which is a 19th century French author, uh, in 1817, he, Stendhal himself, went to Italy, saw in a basilica these frescoes on the ceiling that just blew his mind. And he felt so overwhelmed with the beauty that he thought he was going to have a heart attack and he had to rush out of the church to recover. He had to lay on the ground to recover. And many years later, a doctor at the psychiatrist at uh, Florence's largest hospital realized that there were dozens and dozens of reports of people getting overwhelmed 
in front of art. In fact, I think maybe we even used the word struck by a work of art. I was struck by a work of art. That's a common expression. And these were people who like fainted or had hallucination. And she coined, the doctor at the Florence Hospital coined the term Stendhal syndrome. When Breitweiser, who was a real uh, uh, self, sort of self-taught um, student of art, when he read about Stendhal syndrome, he said to me, he felt he felt he knew exactly what this was. He had his own term for it, which was coup de coeur, which is the French expression meaning, you know, sort of hit to the heart, struck in the heart. But the same thing as Stendhal syndrome, just this, when you see something that you love, and who amongst us can't imagine like the most beautiful thing possible, whether it's sunset over the mountains, whether it's your lover, whether it's a Picasso or a Renaissance painting, we are struck by beauty. And he felt that more powerfully than most. Now, I do want to say that Stendhal syndrome is not an official diagnosis, but there are hundreds of examples of it, uh, not just in Italy. Jerusalem and Paris are also known as hotbeds of Stendhal syndrome. So it's a fascinating idea, a little unofficial, but I think every one of us can sort of think of a moment when we saw something so beautiful that it like caught our breath or knocked us a little bit off our feet or made us weak in the knees. And if you imagine that, times 10 or times 100, that's something like what the art thief Breitweiser felt and perhaps Stendhal himself. Hmm. It's, it's uh, so interesting. And uh, again, don't want to give everything away, but uh, we know he was caught at some point. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, there wouldn't be uh, your book uh, going into these great details. Do you ever feel or do you ever struggle with telling a story like this and uh, and not making it uh, glamorous about someone's life, given that at the end of the day, he is a criminal? Right. I mean, I do want to say that obviously art museums are one of the greatest things about modern society. Jill, I think you and I could probably talk about the problems in modern <laughs> society from now until next August, but museums are not one of those problems. We, people that I assume you're not a billionaire, I'm not a billionaire, we can go for a modest admission fee, see some of the greatest works of art in the world, and you know, there's this public trust. So what Breitweiser and his girlfriend were, were a cancer on public trust. If everybody acted like him, there would be no more museums. It would be just armed guards and bars in front of the Mona Lisa. We wouldn't be able to enjoy it. So I do not condone that for a second. However, it's undeniable that there is some sort of crazy romantic idea. For almost a decade, Breitweiser and Anne Catherine averaged one art theft every 12 days. Most thieves if they can get one or two works of art in their whole career, it's considered successful. And so there is a sort of tendency to romanticize that. I do worry about it. But like any Icarus story, the higher you fly to the sun, the harder you're going to crash. Breitweiser, who probably took more risks and flew higher than any art thief, literally in all of history, there's nobody that has stolen as many times as Breitweiser. He, in the end, luck runs out and he crashes and not just crashes like a regular person. He stole like a maniac and he crashed as hard as you can imagine. And again, as you mentioned, don't want to give away the ending, but it is, uh, I believe, the crash is as spectacular as the rise. Well, I cannot wait to read your book. Michael, thank you so much. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That is Michael Finkel, author of the new book, The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and a Dangerous Obsession. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time once again to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Rob, good morning and happy Friday to you. Good morning. Happy Friday. We are talking a little bit about BC Ferries. I just wanted to play a very short comment. Uh, this is BC Ferries CEO Nicholas Jimenez. We're still looking good, uh, but the system's in stress right now. Uh, the, the demands in the system are historic. Historic demands in the system. This coming from the BC Ferries AGM. What else did we learn from that meeting? It's kind of a fascinating meeting because if you were from outer space and you parachuted down into that meeting, you would have looked at a ferry company that was doing great. And all the, the documents that were handed out, the financial numbers, the new first quarterly numbers of BC Ferries that got released yesterday show record traffic. So we had, you know, more than six million people walking on since April to the end of June. That's the first quarter numbers that came out yesterday. More than two people, dr million people driving on. Uh, and uh, profit had doubled uh, from this time last year to 15 million. So you're looking at that. You're looking at their year end numbers. You're you're coming to this conclusion that, man, BC Ferries is doing really well. The problem is none of the information that came out at the AGM yesterday included the disastrous summer that BC Ferries has had, where you've got the ships breaking down. You have these uh, you know long lines, websites failing, people who literally can't get on a ferry if they want to. And so this kind of dichotomy between two BC ferries that on paper look really well and in reality are kind of chaos at the terminals was was the question to Nicholas uh, Jimenez that you just played right there. And, and it, the question to him was, OK, but like how is BC ferries doing right now, um, having lost so much business in the summer from, uh, you know, ships that, that weren't sailing? Uh, and his answer was, oh, you know, we're still doing OK, but we're. We're stressed, uh, and and that was the undercurrent. But the, you know, the ferry corporation <laughs> did the best it could to sort of um, paint a, a different kind of financial picture. And look, like there are more people using BC ferries now in a year than use Vancouver International Airport. That was a stat that BC Ferries gave yesterday. It's one of the biggest airports in the world, which is amazing when you think about it. Uh, and and I guess that's going to generate profit for BC Ferries, at least on paper. Which, again, it's an impressive stat. And uh, like you said, if you, if you had no previous knowledge or you've not taken a ferry maybe ever, it, it would it would seem on, on, on the surface great news. Uh, probably a surprise to some people that the ferry system is still profitable given the, with the, the recent past and what we've seen with BC Ferries. But did he get into then the challenges and, and what kind of lies ahead with the, the C-Class vessel out till mid-October? And it's still a busy season. And still a lot of people planning trips, especially the upcoming long weekend. Yeah, I mean, BC Ferries is always in the summer, like three to four weeks away from this incredible, busy, long weekend that just hits it, you know, like in the side of the head kind of thing. And so now we've got the Labor Day long weekend and it, it's ripe for something going wrong, especially with the, the coastal uh, renaissance still being out of service until October. So 
there are big plans for BC Ferries, and uh, you have to give them credit when it comes to trying to look to the future. This new CEO is looking uh, ambitiously, and you know, there's everything from new ships, billions of dollars in new ships. He wants to replace all of the uh, the C class Queen ships, you know, the Queen of Surrey and the Queen of Cumberland and that type of thing. Uh, the ones that approval. don't break down as much. Yeah, the, well, actually, the ones that are reliable from right, the 70s. Those ones. That's yeah. right. Let's get rid of those. I mean, they are old um, and they have a lifespan, but that, that's the next uh, plan to replace those. Uh, the Gulf Islands ferries got approval to be replaced just a couple days ago. Uh, and then there's the, the issue of terminals. They want to streamline the terminals. Anyone who's been to a BC Ferries terminal, you know, it's not a particularly pleasant experience. You're jammed in there. Uh, I can never get the vending machines to work. You know, it, they're old. <laughs> it's not. It's not fun. And so they're trying to improve that with automation and scanners and things over the next few years, where you just be able to drive and and ticketless kind of um, uh, processes. It's going to cost a lot of money uh, and the billions and billions of dollars. And the biggest thing BC Ferries is doing right now is an, uh, what they call sort of a visioning exercise. So by this fall, they're going to be asking people, "What do you want from a, a future BC Ferries? Uh, where do you want the ships to go?" Do you want a more walk-on space, more driver space? How do they integrate into transit? What does it look like in you know the in the decades ahead? And then they're going to go to government uh, and say, "Hey, look, here's our plan to to meet this modern future. Uh, we need some money." And that that process is going to play out over the next few months is where the rubber meets the road on on the future of BC ferries. I understand as well that maybe not as high up on the list of topics yesterday or at the AGM, but the buffet also came mm. up and the, the potential future of what's going to happen with that space. Yeah, the buffet is sitting vacant. If you go on a ship right now and you go to the where the coastal buffet used to be, it's closed. And, uh, you know, people, lots of people liked the buffet. It was very unprofitable for BC ferries. They were losing millions of dollars when they hit their crew shortage, which is still suffering. Um, they didn't have the crew necessary to run the thing because it took several people. And so the the future of the buffet is something that they have been consulting with the public on. Modern day consultations online, like the companies try to do, you know, you get a lot of people going on there and writing in uh, things like, you know, buffet, McBuffet face, and, you know, what should we replace the buffet with? A bigger buffet. So some of the consultation is not going to be helpful, but they, they want to know, do you want food in these spaces? If so, can they do it in a different way? What kind of food? Do you want to just lounge in there? Um, that, that sort of thing. And so that is coming, um, but it, it's going to be like everything in BC Ferries, it's going to be kind of um, contentious, I think. Not everyone is aligned on what they want to do with that space. Continuing now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, some uh, interesting developments here. Two First Nations in BC say that they are effectively going to shut down public access to one of the most popular parks in this province. So what is happening here? Yeah, you heard about it uh, a bit on the news update earlier, but Joffrey Lakes Provincial Park is closed now because the Lillawat and Nikwakwa nations released a statement uh, last night shutting uh, the public out until Truth and Reconciliation Day at the end of September. Uh, I mean, this is a very popular park. It has those turquoise kind of blue lakes that you see a lot of people on Instagram taking pictures of themselves uh, sitting in front of. It's just past Whistler. Uh, on the way up to Lillooet, uh, and it has dealt with 
an overwhelming number of visitors in, in recent years. You know, you ever see those videos on social media where it, it shows a picture of someone, you know, at this incredible location looking like they're by themselves. And then it switches and shows you what it looks like behind that, which is like 50 people <laughs> scrambling for a shot on Instagram. Yes. That's what the park's been dealing with. And, you know, cars jammed on the side of the road on Highway 99 and the province put in a, a, a free pass program in 2021 to sort of cap the visitors. And as part of that, they worked with the nations and the nations are asserting um, that in there, there were goals which are, were supposed to support their berry picking and food harvesting and their other traditional uses. And they intend to do that uh, and celebrate their lands uh, with ceremonial activities and um, the public can't come in for that. So that is the situation. Caught the government completely by surprise, last night they've been scrambling to cancel people's camping and pass reservations. I think it, like everything these days, may lead to some type of kind of conflict in person there with people who don't know this has happened or don't like that it has happened showing up and trying to use the park anyways. But uh, we, we will see how that plays out. That's uh, out of nowhere and, and catching the province by surprise for sure. And have we heard from the province or are we hoping or expecting that maybe we'll get more of a, an official statement or response to that later today? Well, there was a statement last night just saying that they had canceled the passes. If anyone is looking for the province to sort of step in here and, and reopen the park, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I don't think the province wants to override two nations. The larger question, can First Nations shut down provincial parks? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think the province knows the answer to that. Uh, citing UNDRIP, citing the uh, uh, Silco Teen court decision on Aboriginal title, nations um, can do these things. Uh, whether there is public kind of buy-in, whether there is government buy-in is a, is a different question. But this is not a NDP government that's going to sail in there and reopen the park. Uh, there'll be some private conversations. But we could be kind of seeing something here that, that the government wants to get ahead of to prevent it possibly from leading to, to bigger kind of public concerns if other parks are closed. But it, it is a, a kind of uncharted territory to have nations do this, and, and we're not quite sure how it's going to go. Right, because you would think, too, well, I, I mean, it, they put the reasons in that release and that announcement as to why they said that they were shutting the park down. But you've also got to think that that's a, a precedent. If this is allowed to go ahead and everyone's pass is canceled and it's closed until the end of September, what's to stop other First Nations or other groups from shutting other parks down? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Aboriginal law that um, is in, you know, developing um, case by case in the province, uh, in Indigenous kind of rights and title, the way that the government consults and has to show meaningful consultation on the use of the land. All of that is kind of a, in flux and constantly changing uh, and strengthening uh, for Indigenous peoples uh, case by case. But in this case, um, it, it, is, it hasn't gone through court. And so the government is kind of left having to decide, does it intervene? Does it go in there and say, unfortunately, we're um, you know, opening this back up for the public? I think there's very little chance that this government is going to do that and spark that kind of conflict with um, these two nations. But you're right. It, there are precedents here that will cause some people to be uncomfortable. Other people will say this helps protect the, uh, you know, the environment of that park. Uh, and I think there'll be some divided public opinion and some concern within the province that if other nations start to do this uh, without consultation, really, without, uh, you know, getting everyone on board, 
Um, what does it mean and how will the public react? And are we uh, going to have some confrontations here uh, by, you know, uh, the convoy type mentality that seems to respond to everything these days, showing up and challenging this and uh, trying to assert their freedoms and rights and, and uh, making things worse, probably. But um, that that would be unpleasant for everyone. So a developing uh unprecedented situation. Uh, yeah, and uh, you're right. I would be surprised if there's not some pushback or some p- potentially some uh, confrontation as well. I was trying to think, though, if this uh, in his historical cases of this, uh, the only things I could think of was there was at some point, I think, on the Duffy Lake Road, uh, there were some First Nations that were, were charging a fee. Same with the West Coast Trail and under that kind of idea, too, of, of for maintenance and for, for using the land. But but I've not, I couldn't remember one where something's actually been shut down. Yeah, I mean, and those evolve, right? So on the West Coast Trail, you have the federal government including and and contracting to the nations to repair the trail and giving them money to do it. And so it leads to the kind of partnership and sort of, you know, um, delegation of responsibilities and money and those type of things. And often it takes a court case to get everyone there. But in this case, it's just been declared. And so you're going to have some people, some people in the public who don't know this show up anyways today and tomorrow, even though their, their, their passes are canceled. Um, the government didn't really say what it's going to do beyond Sunday. Uh, I guess they just don't issue any more passes, but people they'll, I mean, people are going to show up anyways. And so that, that will evolve this. And, and there are very strong, you know, uh, titles and rights um, considerations in law, but this hasn't gone to court yet. And so perhaps someone challenges it in court and we get a ruling that way. There's many different ways this could go, but we don't, we haven't been here before. And that's what makes it so interesting. We will leave it there. Rob, thank you so much and have a great weekend. You too. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. It is Friday morning, time for our weekly check-in with Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. I know we had an extra check-in because of what was happening yesterday. Maybe we'll start there as well, because uh, last time we talked to you, it was before Donald Trump had surrendered at Fulton County Jail. How did things play out? They played out like they've played out over the last three other uh, arraignments, only this time around it took place in a jail, and this time around we have a mugshot of Uh, of the former president. And we also have, for the first time in U.S. history, a former president with a prison ID number, now a part of the Fulton County jail system. I think it's worth pointing out now, Jill, that this picture is going to become a highly protected thing within the uh, Trump campaign. They are going to use this. They are going to fundraise off of it. The question is, Will his rivals and will Democrats also try to use his mugshot to their advantage? It's quite the photo for people who haven't seen it. He's looking pretty stern and staring into the camera. I don't know if you know this. Do you get a, a second shot at that photo or is it like a driver's license photo? You, they take it and you're stuck with the one you get. I mean, look, that's the question that's been asked. Did he get a couple of opportunities to take this photo? I guess we'll never know. Uh, ultimately, this is the one. If it was the only one, it's the one that, that his campaign and that the kind of country is going to have to settle with. But it's also the one that is going to be used to try to drive home to the small town donors that this is why they need to give the campaign money because he is a quote unquote victim here uh, of some kind of political agenda. And as we know, he maintains his innocence. We've seen the other co-defendants surrender in this case. So this will go forward. Is it safe to say this is kind of going along parallel to the the political campaign and, and what else is happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he's going to have to run forward with this. This is going to eventually go to a trial. We know there's one trial date that's been set for October 23rd for one of the defendants. Donald Trump team does not want a speedy trial. They want this to be delayed as long as they can. They want this after the election or not at all. So he's now going to have to kind of dance a line here of trying to avoid um, this cut clash between legal trials, campaign events, uh, uh, primaries that are coming up next year. It's going to be a, a, a tricky line to walk and a tricky calendar to try and pay attention to. But, you know, that's why he has a political team and a legal team. We will be watching to see what happens next there. Uh, let's talk, Reggie, a little bit about the Republican debate and the winners and losers uh, in uh, this. Uh, the, these uh, candidates or hopeful uh, nominees taking uh, center stage. Well, I mean, look, who did the best? It depends on what poll you look at. It depends on who you are and what your beliefs are as you're watching these uh, th- these candidates on stage who ultimately are trying to fight to be the alternative to Donald Trump or or at least be, you know, who is going to come in second because Trump is just racing so far ahead when it comes to polling numbers. Um, from some of the aggregate polling companies out there, um, people would say Ron DeSantis was the winner because he is still the number two in this race. He's the one who has a a kind of current record to be running on when it comes to laws that are being enacted across the state of Florida. There are people saying Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, the kind of lower ranked candidate with lesser popularity, uh, may have come in second place based on uh, on the information he had, except for the fact that he took a beating from Nikki Haley from South Carolina uh, when it came to foreign policy. And there are other polls out there, Jill, that show that uh, Nikki Haley came out uh, strong, and so too did Mike Pence. The one who didn't come out strong was Chris Christie. Not expected. He is a vocal Trump uh, or he, he's vocally anti-Trump, uh, and he, he tried to give a couple of swipes here. But at the end of the day, who wins, who loses in these debates, it, it's kind of you know suggest, suggestive as, as to who you are and what you're ultimately looking for. And I thought it was interesting, one of the comments about it as well, maybe with the exception of Chris Christie, uh, that uh, it, it, it appeared uh, that candidates were avoiding using the actual word Trump, uh, kind of talking about Donald Trump without using his name. And it's it's a strategy because as soon as you mention Trump, you invoke it and everyone else is going to start talking about it. And what does that do? It makes Trump the center of, of a debate where these people are trying to ultimately introduce themselves and put their own policies and platforms first. And to avoid mentioning the word, avoid kind of sucking the oxygen out of the room. And at the end of the day, when you're trying to be the person who is better than Donald Trump, what better way to do it than to not talk about him or to at least simply talk negatively about him because he's not actually there to fight back against what you're saying. Interesting. Um, You mentioned Ron DeSantis. His name has been surfacing as well, uh, talking about different issues, but one in Florida specifically with education officials there uh, approving stricter penalties, and this is uh, dealing uh, with rules and with laws around LGBTQ rights. Yeah, saying that in these state colleges, students and staff members are going to be barred from using restrooms or changing facilities uh, that don't match what the gender is that they were assigned to at birth. And ultimately, he's saying that people can be pushed out of their jobs uh, and fired or have uh, suspensions in pay or, or, or a verbal warning if they go against these policies. And look, 
This is just part and parcel to a number of policies that that Ron DeSantis has enacted uh, targeting the LGBTQ2 plus community across Florida, whether it has to do uh, with with gender identity or whether it has to do with books or trying to ban drag shows. These are policies that that the governor is enacting because he feels that it's in the best interest of Florida. But he's now the second person uh, or in second place in the presidential race. And the question becomes, are the policies he's enacting across Florida as dangerous as they may be something that the broader Republican Party across the United States is interested in? And if not, then what he's doing in Florida could have significant damage to his own you know, potential futures far outside of the state. Hmm, all right. So, well, we'll be watching that one as well. And Reggie, one other story I wanted to touch on, because I know there are still hundreds of people unaccounted for in Maui following the fires there, but there's now a lawsuit involved with those fires. Yeah. And the, the, the question here from the state now suing, uh, uh, rather the Maui government now suing uh, the public utility here is, was there any kind of negligent action here? Did they not turn the power off in time uh, to prevent any of these poles from from being energized and potentially sparking more fires? That's a question that's going to have to be answered in court. But look, this is not something uncommon. Back in 2018, uh, there was a class action lawsuit filed against customers against uh, PG&E in California after a forest fire who alleged that, you know, uh, uh, faulty systems and poor maintenance and not shutting them off in time led to these fires spreading. So if that happened in Maui, there's a chance that the public utility could be found um, you know, responsible here. But I think this is part and parcel of a broader effort to seek accountability for what was ultimately one of the worst fires in American history that is likely going to leave scars on this island for generations. Reggie, as always, thank you so much. Great to check in with you and have a great weekend. Happy Friday. That is Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, have you ever looked at buying an air purifier or thought that maybe there would be a cheaper way to do that? My next guest is here to talk about making one yourself. Anne-Marie Nickel is an associate professor of health sciences at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Uh, When we talk about air purifiers, and uh, and it may not be top of mind for people to start looking into purchasing their own, but uh, before we get into those details, do they actually make a difference in having an air purifier when we're talking about wildfire smoke and other things in the air? Do they make it uh, healthier? Um, Yeah, air purifiers really do help clean up indoor environments and, and improve indoor air quality for fire smoke and a myriad of other indoor air contaminants that people are breathing in every day. And so people would know and know that you can go and purchase air purifiers, but you can make them yourself. Now, if you make one yourself and following the instructions, are they just as good? Do they offer kind of the the same level of protection? They are surprisingly robust and do a really great job. So the technology that we're using in our research this summer is based a lot on work that was done during COVID, where people were looking to develop low-cost ways to reduce uh, virus particles, basically, from indoor air environments. And they, they work for very small things like bacteria and viruses, but they also work for dander, mold, um, dust, and also smoke, particulate matter, smoke. So they, they are actually 
it's amazingly effective for the cost, for the clean air delivery rate. That's what we use to measure um, the output. And the clean air delivery rate for uh, one that you can build yourself is quite a bit less um, in cost than it would be for you to buy one. So what do you need then to build your own purifier and uh, how do you do it? It's pretty simple. Um, I, I often joke that it's not rocket science, it's ventilation science. Um, but there's some pretty specific things you need. So the project that I'm doing this summer, we're targeting um, people who may not either be able to afford um, a sensor or a, a air purifier or they're not able to buy one. Because what we see sometimes is that doors run out when it's really smoky. So what happens if you don't uh, live in a place where you can't buy one um, or they're all sold out or all you've got is what's at the local hardware store? So there's some specifications. The fan has to be strong enough. It has to be at least a 75-watt box fan. And you need to have something called a MERV-13 furnace filter, which if you go to a hardware store, there's aisles of furnace filters. And you tape the furnace filter to the fan. And you put something called a shroud on the front of it, which improves efficiency. And, and then you turn it on. And they're, they're quiet. At, they're as quiet usually as a normal commercial air purifier too. That's one thing people often ask is it, was it noisy? Um, but no, it's not noisy. It's not bulky. And you can disassemble it if you like later on, uh, if you're no longer worried about your indoor air quality. And does it matter where you put them? Should you put them near a window or if you put them anywhere in your house, are they going to, to clean the air in the room where you have it set up? It's best to put them in the room where you're sitting or a room where you're sleeping. They don't recommend that you leave them unattended. And what they do work really well for is if it's been smoky outside for a while and you need to stay indoors, if you shut windows in, in a room and then you use the air cleaners, you can actually really improve the air quality in one room. People often underestimate how big a room is, and there is specifications for how many air cleaners that you would need for a normal room. So if you pick a smaller room like a bedroom and then run the air cleaner in that room, you can see a significant reduction a 75% reduction in contaminants in that room in a fairly short time. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the filter and uh, a filter that you can purchase at uh, your uh, local hardware store. Uh, do you need to change the filter on a regular basis or how long does it last? That's part of the research that we're doing this summer because it's sort of as long as a piece of string. It, it kind of depends on how dirty the air is in, outside and then inside of your home. So we want to see how long people take before they want to change their filter. And I've been running one in my home for a while, so it's definitely getting brown on the one side. You can really see because the particles build up in the filter itself. So you, you kind of get a visual of what's going on indoors as the air is being pulled through. The, the dirty air is pulled through the filter. The particulates and things stay behind. And then the clean air comes out the other side. And that must be uh, quite the visual when you think about all of that, uh, the, the the stuff that stopped would have been coming right into the air that you're breathing. Exactly. I, I already had uh, filters in my house prior to this project coming along because um, I've been concerned for a while about indoor air quality. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time realistically in my house. You know, since COVID, most people spend about 90% of their time indoors and uh, most of that is spent indoors in homes. So, we really need to be thinking a lot more about the contaminants that are in our indoor air because that's what we're exposed to all day long. So things that remove contaminants are really important for our health.
Well, it's a, a very interesting project and great that people are uh, now being uh, told exactly how they can do this if they want to build their own purifier. Anne-Marie Nickel, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Oh, thank you for having me. There's lots of information too, but I would just, when people are looking around the BC Centre for Disease Control and BC Lung Foundation, they have the directions um, for how to make these units. And we have a shopping list at BC Lung where people can go and see exactly the specifications that we've designed these so that people can go to, you don't have to order something, all the parts, it's duct tape, a filter and a fan. You can go and make your own um, and then make some positive changes in a very increasingly smoky world. All right. That is Anne-Marie Nickel, again, with Health Sciences at SFU, bclung.ca, if you want to check out the website and those instructions. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, some tensions in the area of the North Shoe Swamp in BC. We know some residents stayed behind after the evacuation order was given, and they have been working very hard to save their homes as well as the homes of their neighbours. There are also reports of a small group getting into a confrontation with some police officers at a roadblock on Wednesday. Well, joining us now to talk more about what is happening in this area is Jay Simpson, the Columbia Shoe Swap Regional District Area Director for North Shoe Swap. But Jay, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Happy to do it. Uh, how are things going? What is it like in the area where you are right now? Well, smoke's a little heavier right now than it has been over the last couple of days, but certainly an awful lot better than it was earlier in the week. Um, in terms of the fire situation, you know, down in the communities, it's it's looking pretty good. There's still hot spots and little flare-ups and things like that, but everything seems to be getting taken care of quite well. Um, up in the mountains, still terrible stuff going on. BC Wildfires is up there fighting those. I've seen helicopters going across and dumping water over in Sorrento, and certainly up in our backwoods as well. And Jay, I know that you have stayed behind and some others have stayed behind uh, even when the evacuation order was put in place. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you made that decision? You bet. Um, You know, we have a very close-knit community here. Uh, um, Most of the women and children and and elderly went out with the evacuation order and and that's exactly how it should be. We were really concerned because we knew this fire was coming and we hadn't had much communication from BC Wildfire as to what they were doing, uh, where they were going. Uh, We didn't see anybody in our community. And I think about 10% of the population maybe stayed behind about 300 people. And that's over a stretch of about uh, 25 or 30 kilometers along the lake. So, I mean, fairly spread out, but still... We stayed here to protect our homes, our communities, and to make sure that we could do whatever we could to stop this fire. And we've heard about some clashes. And uh, the, when you talk about the, the lack of communication or, or not great communication in the beginning, uh, what happened with it? Was it because those who stayed behind, yourself included, uh, you were trying to fight this fire? You were trying to save your homes and your neighbors' homes. And technically, if you stay behind in an evacuation order, you're supposed to kind of stay put. You're not supposed to be moving around. Yeah, the rules around that say that you're supposed to stay on your own lot during an evacuation order if you don't go. So that means that, you know, if your neighbor's place uh, got an ember and started on fire, then you could not go to your neighbor's lot and put that out. 
you know, the first two days here, there weren't any firefighters other than our local fire departments in Celesta, Scotch Creek, and Anglemont. And they were out running around, but there, I mean, there's 25 of them in each group. So, you know, 75 people working 12-hour shifts, that is not going to put out this fire. So the people that were here, the 300 that stayed, uh, we were working alongside them and, and just doing everything we could to, to put things out. So the clash is between, you know, the, the order that is in place and the reality that, that we needed to protect ourselves. Right, because anybody, I think, if they were to put yourself, put themselves in your position, if you're staying behind, you're at your home, and you see, like you say, an ember, or you see a small fire start at your neighbor's place, of course you're going to jump up and try and stop it, even if that means you're going against the rules and technically leaving your property. Absolutely. What about the clash on Wednesday? And this was a small group of people clashing with police officers at that checkpoint. Yeah, that was in Sorrento, which is across the lake from us, probably about 25 kilometers away. Um, We don't know who they are. Um, They, you know, took our situation and tried to make a a big deal out of it um, for their own benefit. And and that's not what we're all all about. We don't know them. We don't condone them. We don't like that kind of action. It actually set us back potentially days in, in the work that we've been doing to communicate with BC wildfires. Um, we've had great communication with them since Tuesday and, uh, you know, that could, that, that really scared me because BC wildfires put out a note that said they had to pull their people back because they weren't, they didn't feel safe here and their equipment may not be safe. Um, so, you know, I got right on, um, in communication with my BC wildfire contact and said, you know, this isn't us. Don't pull out. We need you guys. Um, and, you know, uh, getting on top of that really quick was crucial to uh, keeping them here at BC Wildfires is doing their level best to keep us safe now. And when we talk as well about it seemed like there was some confusion over equipment that was left behind by wildfire, by BC wildfire officials and some of the residents using that equipment. What are your thoughts on the fact that it was first it was first put out as it was being stolen? We then heard that some residents were using this equipment to help fight these fires. They were actually putting diesel into the generators. What, what actually happened there? Well, BC wildfires did come in and put some equipment around prior to the fire arriving. Um, and, you know, that was great because the people that are here, we're not, we don't have all that equipment for fighting fire. So I can see where, um, you know, we've got pumps and, and things like that. And, and you just, you take those pumps and, and you try to put out fires, water pumps, but you don't have enough hose. And there's this hose laying on the ground beside the road that BC wildfires put out. So what are you going to do? You're going to leave that there and not put out the fire? I can see where people would have picked up some of those hoses and, and used them in the defense of their homes. So, you know, fire equipment did move. It wasn't stolen. It was repurposed. It was better than laying on the ground doing nothing. So I think that's really where that stuff came, that story came from. Do you, were homes saved because you and the others stayed behind? No doubt about it. Absolutely true. We fought very hard for many homes and, and with alongside of our local fire departments and and then later in the week with BC wildfires we've saved many homes 
So what happens at this point? Do you have a, a better working relationship with BC Wildfire uh, as far as uh, now uh, they realize that, that you and the other residents have stayed, you, you have no intention of leaving, you're going to fight if this, if this fire continues to be a threat? Or how do things then move forward from here? Well, you know, in our conversations with BC Wildfires, we've you know, found out that they are stretched so thin. And, and that's the reality here, right? There's fires all over the province. They do not have the personnel or the equipment to deal with everything that's going on. So we have people here, contractors with, with uh, bulldozers, with excavators. That's the equipment that BC Wildfire needs to build fire breaks. So, yeah, we're working very closely with them and uh, going out there, building fire breaks, protecting the communities. At this point, um, 25 people from our community are getting trained up to uh, BC Wildfire's S100 standard today. And those guys are going to be able to go out and work alongside BC Wildfires safely in the forest and, and do the things that BC Wildfire needs us to do. We need each other. There's no way we can put this fire out and BC Wildfires does not have the personnel or equipment to do it all themselves. So we need to work together in concert and make this situation much better. How confident are you uh, that, uh, and that seems like a positive step, uh, that that is going to help and uh, this fire will be put out without more loss? You know, that fire is still raging up in the hills. And BC Wildfires, uh, in conjunction with us and working with us, is, is making fire breaks, trying to turn that fire so that it doesn't come down on our, our, our safe community so far, like Anglemont. Anglemont is, is definitely in the line of the fire. If we left it, it would be coming down there. So we're not out of the woods. We're, we're, we aren't safe. And the communities that have burnt are, are getting to a point where Things are looking good. We actually got some power back in Scotch Creek yesterday, which is just awesome. That's such a a pickup for the people. But uh, we're not finished this fire yet. Well, Jay, I appreciate you taking the time to join the show this morning. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time to kick it with the Caps. Vanny Sartini is with us once again, coach of the Vancouver White Caps. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? Very good. Very good. Thank you. Oh, big game coming up. Uh, I heard it uh, talked about as the uh, trip uh, down the I-5 memory lane. So what's uh, what's on your mind as you get ready to play Portland? Yeah, uh, yeah it's always a um, special day when we play Portland. It's one of our rivals. Their stadium is always, uh, um, I would say, one of the loudest and... Uh, even hardest play to to play. Uh, it's one of the stadium that because uh, it's not that far from Vancouver that uh, uh, a lot of our fans they travel and they come to support us. And uh, it's also one of the place that uh, you know in two years that I've been the 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 head coach of the team is one of the sweetest memory to be honest because when we we won uh, there three two. Uh, in at the end of 2021, that uh, very important game to qualify us to the playoffs. So hopefully it's gonna be it's gonna be the same tomorrow too. Now this starts seven consecutive road matches for the Whitecaps. That's got to be a pretty grueling schedule. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, you know uh, we cannot do anything about it because that's how the schedule was designed. But uh, yeah, we need to we need to step up and we need to make points on the road because uh, 
then after these seven games we'll have we'll have three games uh, we'll have three games on uh, on um, uh, on the row uh, at home and uh, we'll um, we'll have to be ready to win those games in order to get the playoffs so but first we need to make uh, points away that has been a little bit difficult this season so we need just to step up and be the best version of ourselves well i know a lot of people are going to be uh, looking to that game in portland and uh, and uh, seeing how the team is doing vanny we'll leave it there for this morning but always great to chat with you thank you so much thank you you all right, sounds good. That is Vanny Sartini, the coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Again, they are going to be playing against Portland. That game happening tomorrow, kickoff at 7.30. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah on this Friday morning. Well, we have been talking a lot about the Okanagan because of the wildfires and what's happening with forest fires in that region. But uh, there is another debate on a much lighter note that is also ongoing, and that is the Ogopogo and whether or not the Ogopogo is something that is alive and well and in the lakes in in, uh, Okanagan Lake. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is John Kirk, a British Columbia scientific crypto with the BC Scientific Cryptozoology Club. Thank you, John, so much for being with us today. Happy to be here, Jill. Why is it, do you think, that we can go back, I think 1904 is the first recorded encounter. Uh, first Nations hunter claimed uh, to have seen this creature all the way up to the 80s, still sightings, that this is such uh, a, a creature, such a story that grips so many people. Well, this, this story actually goes back way beyond uh, 1904. There may have been a sighting then, but the First Nations have been carving uh, petroglyphs all over the uh, Okanagan Lake area and also uh, ochre paintings as well of this horse-headed serpentine beast all over the place um, around Okanagan Lake. Uh, the, the First Nations people uh, have been seeing something in the lake for many years, and as a consequence of that, uh, we finally had the first Europeans uh, settler sighting in 1872 by Mrs. Uh, John Allison. She's Susan Moyer Allison, and she saw the creature from her farm, uh, Sunnyside, on the west side of the lake. At the same time, the mining superintendent of the Okanagan Valley, Thomas Smitherum, saw it. Both of them saw it at the same time from different sides of the lake. Uh, and they, they confirmed the stories of the First Nations that there was this large serpentine creature in the lake. Since then, there have been literally thousands of sightings, and there have actually been uh, footprint tracks shown on the uh, edges of the lake, uh, body drag marks on beaches in the Okanagan as well. So we're talking about a physical creature here for sure. A physical creature then, but do we know or have a better idea what it actually is? No, I mean, I've been searching after this thing since I first saw it in 1987. It, it sort of baffled me that the scientific community weren't investigating to find out exactly what this creature is. And it is a real anomaly. It can't be a reptile, because reptiles can't exist in lakes that get as cold as Okanagan Lake. Even in the summertime, when you go 50 or 60 feet down, the water temperature changes critically down to between 2 and 5 degrees Celsius, so a reptile can't live there. 
that leaves us with only a couple of other options. It's either an amphibian or it's it's some kind of uh, mammal. The mammal one is highly unlikely because, you know, that mammals have to breathe. You see dolphins, whales, killer whales, uh, seals and sea lions, they all have to come up to the surface to breathe. But this doesn't happen at Okanagan Lake. You only see it on the surface at relatively uh, warm times of the year, especially when the sun is out and it's relatively hot. And in the past, you know, this animal has shown no indication that it's a uh, air-breathing animal at all. In fact, we've hardly had any sightings in the last couple of years, and this is pretty much par for the course. But um, we we remain hopeful because there's occasional rumors that you hear about that somebody saw it last week, but they don't want to come forward for fear of ridicule. Uh, Well, there certainly is a a fair amount of that as well. Would we be talking, though, about descendants of what was originally seen? It it, it certainly couldn't be one creature, could it? what, What would that make the lifespan? No, it's not the same creature. There's, there's obviously some sort of a breeding population because on a number of occasions, people have seen three, four, five of them, a couple of them on a few occasions as well. And as recently as 2021, myself and a group of people were out in the northern part of the lake where we were just cruising, and we saw a pod of them. I mean, literally a pod of them. They were smaller than the large ones that are reported, but we could see a group of them swimming behind a larger one, and they were between five and seven there. So I think realistically speaking, you're talking about a breeding population, plus they can be sustained. There's enough fish in that lake to to sustain a decent population. Uh, Is it possible that they're sturgeon or that they're a a descendant of some other type of large, uh, large creature? Well, if you go to Fisheries and Oceans and the Ministry of uh, Wildlife in BC, there's not a single report of a sturgeon ever having been taken out of Okanagan Lake. There have been some rumors, but nobody's ever produced one. Now, these don't fit the sturgeon profile because sturgeon uh, don't swim in in the vertical plane, that is, up and down like dolphins and whales swim. This is how Ogopogo swims. Uh, sturgeon swim side to side like any other kind of fish. So I've watched this thing on occasion in the past where it's gone speeding down the lake at high speed, and it's not a sturgeon, I can assure you. Plus, sturgeon don't have humps. Right. Uh, what is it that, that keeps you inspired or interested in this and trying to learn more about Ogopogo? Well, it's a question of identification, really. We want to be able to catalogue this thing in the International uh, Taxonomic uh, Registry. We, we need to give it a, you know, we have to find out what it is, give it a name, and, and uh, catalogue this thing scientifically. We're not monster hunters. We're people who are looking at this as a scientific um, endeavour in, t- in terms of trying to identify an unknown species in, in 42 different B.C. lakes, okay? It isn't just Okanagan Lake. We've had reports of this from Vancouver Island, from the Sunshine Coast, uh, the interior, and Okanagan and Shushwap. And it's a question of, if we've got this sort of wildlife, what are we doing to protect it? You know, it needs to be protected ultimately. And it was until... It, um, a protection order was rescinded by the Liberals back in the early 2000s. Uh, the Social Credit Party had actually protected Ogopogo uh, indirectly in 1989. Now, uh, we have human encroachment all the time in, in these lakes, and we want to preserve wildlife as best as we can. And uh, this is something that's paramount. If you catalogue it and you put it in the scientific catalogue, you are able to protect it. 
Well, it uh, will certainly be uh, something that you and many, many people are going to continue uh, to focus on. John Kirk, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Have a great day.